From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. On the show today, we hear about the first all-female crew of referees to call a Louisiana high school football game. Plus, we learn about a study that investigated the high rates of Louisianans who die of unnatural deaths while in custody. But first, if you're a regular RTA bus rider in New Orleans, there's a good chance you've recently had to deal with long delays. That's because RTA is functioning with fewer buses than required, and many of the operating buses are old and in need of updates and repairs. Reporter for Verite, Bobby Jean Missick, has been covering this bus shortage, and she joins us now for more. Bobby, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Alana. Can you start by telling us about the current numbers? How many operating buses is RTA supposed to have? How many do they have? And what are some of the main causes of this shortage? Okay, so the RTA says it has 140 buses that can be available for service, but that includes more than 50 buses that are out being repaired at any time. Um, And that's sort of an average. Uh, Actually, the number of buses that were available for service in August was closer to 84. And on some days, that number was even as low as 78. The RTA says it needs 87 buses in order to provide on-time service during peak hours. Um, and, And the reasons for these shortages are mainly because buses are getting older and breaking down. What um, what's the CEO of the RTA, Lana Edwards-Hankins, told me was that basically the RTA did, did not have a plan in recent years to replenish its fleet. And so between 2012 and 2019, they weren't purchasing new buses. There's like a huge stock of buses that need to be retired. They're, they're nearing the end of their lives. And they're still on the road. And so they're breaking down. Parts are harder to find. Diesel mechanics are harder to find. And and this is causing major delays for bus riders in New Orleans. Well, according to your reporting, RTA's biggest fleet of buses was before Hurricane Katrina. What did the busing system look like back then? And why, 18 years later, are we still not back to pre-Katrina levels? So you're right. Back then, RTA had roughly 370 buses in its fleet, according to media reports from that time. Flooding from Hurricane Katrina damaged about 200 of those buses, and the remaining were aging out of usefulness. What happened after Hurricane Katrina was, you know, they had to wait for FEMA and their insurance to to make settlements, and then they finally got to order some new buses beginning in 2008. And between 2008 and 2012, we see them ordering a lot of buses. Well, even if there were buses ordered in 2012, they would be aging out by now. And like I said before, they didn't make another purchase until 2019. So we just have those small handful of buses from 2019 that are still sort of in that. Well, what has RTA's response been? How are they planning to address this shortage and the riders who are impacted by it? Well, to RTA's credit, they have been they have really acknowledged that they're in a really tough spot. The agency has ordered 21 hybrid electric buses. They are supposed to begin 
manufacturing those in March. There's been a little bit of confusion about when those buses are going to be ready, though. Uh, in, in a recent board meeting, Lana Edwards Higgins told the board that they could be ready as soon as June. But in an interview with Verity, you know, she said that she wasn't going to be able to stay until the buses were on the lot. Um, in, in preparation for next summer, when people might again be waiting for buses in extreme heat, the RTA said that it is they are building more um, coverings and seating at stations, at bus stops around the city, so that at least folks have a place to sit in the shade while they wait for their buses. Bobby Jean Missick is a reporter for Verite in New Orleans. Bobby, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. In the last week of September, a group of referees made history when they became the first all-female crew to call a Louisiana high school football game. The game between Glen Oaks and Parkview Baptist had eight female referees and was led by Marcia Cotton, who made history two years earlier when she became the first woman to be a lead referee at a Louisiana high school varsity football game. For more on her journey and paving the role for women in sports officiating careers, she joins us now. Marcia, welcome to Louisiana Considered. Hey, thank you for having me. Marcia, I am so excited to be talking with you today. I love all things women in sports. So even though you're a football referee today, I know that your first love was basketball. Can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with that sport and how you eventually made the move to football? Uh, well, my relationship with basketball, it started from a young age. So I've been playing basketball um, and love basketball because I did do other sports, but uh, just loving basketball. And after I finished playing in college, um, I kind of just you know, kept going, kept playing like intramural and just pick up games and stuff like that. And then I started coaching like little little kids uh, at the YMCA here. And from there, you know, just talking to the officials every day, they kind of challenged me to just do a better job. Then come on. And I'm like, OK, I think I can do a better job. <laughs> um, so that's the way I got started in, in basketball. Um, just doing basketball, there were some officials who uh, did both sports. And I just said, you know, in preseason before basketball season would start, you know, football season was in full, in, you know, in full bloom. Uh, so I was like, okay, well, I'll just come on Friday nights. I love football. <clears throat> I'll just come and run the clock for you guys and everything. Then started doing like JV and freshman games during the week. And and pretty soon, you know, a couple of guys, they were like, no, we want you on the field. And I'm like, no, I'm good. And then they were like, they convinced me to get on the field. I got on the field and just fell in love with it. Well, what is it about calling a football game that you really enjoy? I mean, it's so different from basketball. It's so much slower. Plays need to be evaluated really closely. It can take a lot of time. So what is it that you really like about it? Uh, options. Football is a game of options, I tell people. Um, you know, it, it looks slow, but it's really fast, you know. But uh, like you're saying, I think like in between plays, because, you know, in basketball, it's just up, down, up, down. You know, this, you have to make mm -hmm. quick decisions. Where in, in football, you do have plays, so you have a down. Then it's like a lot of action really fast. Uh, 22 players on the field, you know, so you definitely have more players uh, that you're looking at. Uh, but just 
the emotions in football. The, you know, the, I, I think just by the difference of the rules. And as I said, in football, you have rules of options. It's like every single play, there's an option. Well, what was your experience like when you first started calling games? Did you ever get any pushback or suggestions that, hey, women don't play this sport. Why are they calling this sport? Or were most people accepting or surprised or maybe not surprised at all? Um, I have to say that, you know, it was it was split. I think more people accepted it than didn't. Certain Certain times, you know, I would arrive at games and it would be like, um, kind of a look over, I would say, but I was always okay with that because I knew once the, you know, once the whistle blow, you know, we would blow the whistle, everything else went out the door. Cause at the end of the day, regardless of how you did, how a person did feel or whatever, end of the day, they just want the game called correctly. Right. We are speaking with Louisiana High School Athletic Association football referee Marcia Cotton, who recently led the first all-female team of referees in calling a Louisiana high school football game. So let's talk about the game. You led a crew of eight referees. How did this idea come together to have an all-female officiating crew, and how did you get it off the ground? started at the beginning of the, uh, you know, the preseason, once the football uh, officials, we started having meetings, started having our interest meetings, you know, who's interested, who are we bringing to the meetings and everything, and just people, people talking. Uh, my regional coordinator of officials, uh, Louis Mativier, you know, he looked around the room and he ca- he was like, hey, let me talk to you about something because I see that there are uh, a lot more females than we usually had. We can put an all-female crew on the, uh, on the field on the varsity, you know, for a varsity game. And I was like, okay, you know, let's see. I was still like, wait a minute now. Let's not, you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But uh, I think just him spearheading that. And then after him talking to, you know, other core officials in the room and at the meeting and everything, and they're like, hey, we're, you know, we're in. We want to prepare these ladies. We want to, you know, we want to take them under our wing. We want them to, you know, to be the best officials that they, that they can be. Uh, and then so after after we didn't quite make a seven person crew uh, out of Baton Rouge, um, Louis uh, Mativier, he started, you know, looking around, looking around the state and asking other uh, RCOs, hey, do you have any female officials that would like to take the field because we want to do this because we th- we just think that it would be a good thing for, you know, for the state, first of all. The yeah, state of yeah. Louisiana and then other, you know, other uh, young ladies wanted to get involved in officiating that they would be able to see, you know, that, hey, this is if it's something that you love to do, then we do have examples that we have put out there on the field and we're here to support you. Absolutely. Well, can you tell us about some of the other women that you were working with? Who are some of them and what were their roles in the game? So we had six women from the Baton Rouge Association. My Headline judge, uh, Tiffany Willis, my line judge, Portia, uh, my umpire, Kayla Cheney, one of my deeps, uh, Celia Flores. She's from the greater New Orleans area. And my other deep is uh, Gwendolyn Greenup uh, Collins from Baton Rouge. And then I had two clock operators who were just phenomenal. So one was out of, is out of Baton Rouge, and then the other is uh, out of the greater New Orleans area also. 
Gotcha. Okay, well, I know that at the game, you even had a visit from a role model of yours, Kim Mulkey, LSU women's basketball coach who led the team to a March Madness championship last year. Can you tell us what that was like to have her there and why she's important to you? Oh, it was it was awesome. Growing up in Bastrop, Louisiana, North Louisiana, you know, I grew up watching Louisiana Tech. You know, that's when I first started admiring uh, Coach Mulkey. As a player. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, so just from there, man, and then just to come down here and be the be in the midst of, you know, what she's actually brought to back to Louisiana, you know, as a state and been here in Baton Rouge, you know, is just phenomenal. And you can just feel the energy that she does bring. And I just think that it's awesome. Absolutely. Well, before we go, I'm wondering, why do you think that it often takes longer for umpires and officiants to have representation? I mean, most people know the story of Jackie Robinson, who broke baseball's color barrier in 1947. But a lot of people don't know that it wasn't until 1966, almost 20 years later, when umpire Emmett Ashford became the first black umpire in baseball. And he had been trying to break into that scene for years. So why do you think it is that it sometimes takes longer for these umpires and officiants who are minorities to finally get a break on the field? I, I think what happens most and you know, when you're when you're talking about just breaking into different fields and stuff like that, it's really it, it comes down to the support the support that you have and the people that are willing to take those chances on, you know, what's not seen. Uh, the people that are willing to, you know, to just to step out there and just um, just to step out there and say, hey, you know, this person deserves a chance. This person has put in the work. I want to be the person to let them know that, hey, I'm supporting you. And that's and that's what happens, I think, in a lot of arenas. We've been speaking with Louisiana High School Athletic Association referee Marcia Cotton, who recently led the first all-female team of referees in calling a Louisiana high school football game. Marcia, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. A recent study out of Loyola University revealed that as many as one in four inmates in Louisiana jails and prisons who die of unnatural deaths behind bars had not yet been convicted of a crime. According to the research, these inmates were primarily held in local jails. Andrea Armstrong is a professor at Loyola University's College of Law and lead author on this report. She spoke with WRKF's Adam Voss for more. So tell me about some of what your data found about deaths in jails and prisons here in Louisiana. What's the trend? What's going on? I think the first thing to know is that we looked at deaths that happened behind bars. That includes prisons, jails, uh, police lockups throughout Louisiana. And I did this with my students who requested public records from every single facility. And what we found is from 2015 to 2021, 1,168 people, uh, incarcerated people, have died behind bars. And so what this report does is it analyzes the causes of death um, and also looks at trends in the types of deaths uh, that have occurred over the last seven years. So to be clear, these numbers include both violent deaths like what you traditionally imagine assaults 
uh, someone committing violence on someone else, uh, but also suicides, uh, overdoses, a lot of other causes of death. Tell me about that. Yeah. So first, we actually look at all deaths. We look at deaths due to medical causes. We look at deaths due to accidents, suicides, drugs, violence. Um, and then there's also a large category of unknown deaths where jail or prison officials have not indicated what the cause of death is. And the reason we started this project is because no one knew who was dying, why they were dying, and how many were dying behind bars. Um, this was a question that was asked to me by a mother of someone who had died in East Baton Rouge Parish Prison and said, is my son the only one to die this way? And I couldn't give her an answer. And so we started this project. We're also looking at deaths that are occurring in prisons versus jails. As you know, in Louisiana, we house approximately 50% of our convicted population, people who would normally in other states be in a state-operated prison. We house those people in local jails and sheriffs receive a per diem per person per day. And so one of the, the strongest findings that we found is the number of unnatural deaths that are occurring in parish jails. Um, and it really is at a crisis level right now. Is there anywhere with notably higher rates of deaths, any anomalies out there? Your report mentions East Baton Rouge Parish, the, the parish prison there. East Baton Rouge Parish um, has a history of um, deaths in that facility that are far larger than the population that it houses, right? And so um, when we think about uh, jails, where we have a lot of deaths. Um, East Baton Rouge is at the top, as is the Orleans Justice Center historically. So talking about medical reasons for death, uh, the thing about being behind bars is that you can't just go and see your doctor when you want to. You're sort of at the discretion of what medical treatment the prison or the jail provides you. Tell me about that. Right. So if you're incarcerated, you can't just call up your doctor and make an appointment. You can't go to the nearest clinic. You are fully dependent on the health care that that facility decides to provide for you. The system that works behind bars is really a sick call system. So when you're sick, you submit a form saying, I'm having these symptoms. And usually within 24 hours, you'll get some sort of response or assessment uh, by the health care provider. But what they're treating is the symptom, not necessarily looking for a broader pattern or for a broader diagnosis that might be underlying that symptom. And so there are real questions on whether the healthcare systems in jails and in prisons are actually providing the care that they would receive if the person was free. We're speaking with Andrea Armstrong, a law professor at Loyola University's College of Law and lead author on research looking at deaths behind bars in Louisiana. What is it structurally about the criminal justice system here that you think contributes to these deaths? What are some of the big institutional factors here? Well, first, I do think healthcare has to be at the forefront of any discussion about prisons and jails in Louisiana. Jails are designed for short-term stays. They're not designed for long-term stays, meaning that the healthcare there may be less robust, um, and have less access to the types of specialty care that are needed than if you're housed in a prison. Um, there are a number of other parts that can act as barriers to healthcare when you're incarcerated. 
uh, a lot of facilities and the prison system charge an access fee for a sick call. Now, they will not refuse care if you can't pay the access fee. However, it becomes a debt. And so if you're incarcerated and you're making two cents an hour um, in a state prison, you might think twice about incurring an additional two or three dollar debt because you have symptoms. So local jails, local parish jails are different places, are different kinds of facilities from state prisons. What are the differences between jails and prisons that contribute to what you found? In general, our prisons are staffed by correctional officers who that is their profession. They're not just doing a couple of years there and then going out into a, a patrol or a street type of position. Whereas in jails, which are operated uh, primarily by sheriffs, you do have folks who are only in the jail for maybe the two first two years of their career and who then move on to a street or outside level job. What that means in terms of training, though, is that in prisons, you may have officers who have better training, more experience um, in a correctional environment than in a jail. Um, some of the differences that we see in terms of deaths are really striking uh, when we think about causes of deaths. So in parish jails, we see higher levels of unnatural deaths. So for example, 61% of all suicides that were reported to us between 2015 and 2021, those occurred in parish jails. So there are questions there about observation, about what suicide watch protocols look like. Do these jails even have suicide watch protocols? Um, these are all things that we simply don't have enough information about. We also have high levels of drug overdoses. 54% of all drug overdoses occurred in a jail. We also saw that 53% of accidental deaths, that could be anything from um, a work-related accident to uh, some of them involved falling off of their bunk and sustaining a head injury, for instance. Those were also occurring more than in prisons. And speaking of the jail population, you mentioned that Louisiana is in a unique place among states in keeping its state prisoners that would otherwise be in state prison in local jails instead where they would be subject to a different level of care. Tell me about that number. It's really interesting. Um, this comes out of some litigation from the 1970s where basically uh, the Department of Corrections, the plaintiffs and the judge all agreed that to solve the overcrowding problem that we had in Louisiana in the 1970s, we would just house a, a large proportion of the prison population in local jails per, per diem. Other states put people who have been serving convictions in state-operated prison, not in local jails. Because of that, we see that in some jails, uh, they're housing thousands of people on behalf of DOC, in addition to any pretrial populations that they may be housed, uh, housing who haven't yet had a trial on their guilt or innocence. Andrea Armstrong is a professor of law at Loyola University's College of Law. Andrea, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. 
from WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, this has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, reporter for Verite, Bobby Jean Missick, Louisiana High School Athletic Association referee, Marcia Cotton, and professor at Loyola University's College of Law, Andrea Armstrong. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell, and our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.